My name is Steve Gould. I'm a professional drummer and an amateur thinker. My favorite part of life is learning, which is great because there's so much to learn. That's what this show is for. Thinking out loud, discussing ideas, sharing conversation, listening, growing, and hopefully learning something. The Steve Gould Show. Hi there. Episode six of the Steve Gould Experience. Nope, it's not. It's called the Steve Gould Show. But a friend of mine that I was playing a gig with over the weekend kept referring to it as the Steve Gould Experience, which I thought was pretty funny. To be totally honest, I thought for a while about what to name my podcast, and I I could not come up with anything better than the Steve Gould Show. I was going to call it Q&A Thursday, because that's a big part of why I even got the idea to do a podcast. More on that a little later. But ultimately, I landed on the Steve Gould show for the title because it feels like it frees me up to have guests or not have guests, to talk about music or not about music, to you know mention Q&A Thursday or not. It's very open-ended, and I appreciate that freedom because I want to talk about a lot of things and have a lot of different segments. So before I get to the main topic today, Q&A Thursday, I'll start off with new experiences which is this. I played a gig last night in Joshua Tree, California with Misty Boyce, just the two of us as a duo. Those of you who listened to episode two of the podcast will remember Misty Boyce as my girlfriend. Life update, she's now my fiance. We got engaged last month, so that's exciting. But that's not the new experience part. What I'm referring to is the fact that we played the gig together, just us two, in a way that I've been really working hard at over the past eight months. I taught myself how to play a synth bass with my right hand, bass lines on a little keyboard instead of a bass guitar. I I set the synthesizer on my floor tom, and then I use just my left hand and my feet on the pedals of the drum set to play the rest of the drum set without my right hand. So I'm kind of splitting my limbs between two different band members' jobs. I'm the drummer and I'm the bass player. Misty sings and plays keys. She also often plays guitar, accompanying herself vocally with either of those two instruments. And between her vocal, plus the guitar or the keyboard, plus the bass lines on the synth, plus me playing the drums, we have what feels like a very full band sound between just the two of us. It's been wild to teach myself how to do that. Honestly, I haven't worked on anything musically as hard as I've worked on this. And what I'm noticing is that it's changing the way I view all of music. I, I went through periods of heavy practicing for jazz drumming or Latin drumming, learning how to play with a click really well in the studio or learning how to play a certain artist's songs. Seasons of intense practice are not new to me. But what is new to me is the knowledge of how the bass functions in the band from a personal experience. I mean, I know how the bass works. I've been around a lot of bass players in my career and I listen to them talk about their instrument and I ask questions and I've got a pretty good understanding of what the bass is doing, what the bass job description is, but I've never done it. Truly, I I just have only ever engaged music via the language of rhythm and the role of the drum set. 
knowing the bass lines causes me to pay more attention to the melody, to the key of the song, to the way a measure feels, if it has lots of notes in it or, or not from a bass, versus just lots of drum hits. The whole thing is totally new, and the effect that it's having on my perspective of all of music is reminding me of the movie Arrival. Jeremy Renner and Amy Adams in that film are linguistics experts who are called in by the military to address some aliens that have landed on Earth. And we don't know what the aliens want, but it's clear that the aliens are trying to communicate with us, and we bring in a couple linguistic experts to study the aliens' language, because the language is obviously very foreign. The premise of the movie is that no one understands how the language even functions, let alone what the aliens are trying to communicate. And as Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner's characters learn this language, it starts to affect their perception of their entire reality. They start seeing all of life differently because their mind is engaging the method of understanding that the aliens have via their language. Which is to suggest that the language one speaks or the approach that one uses with reality affects one's understanding of reality, which I, I had never considered before I watched that movie. And now in the microcosm of music, I'm experiencing what it's like to view my profession, the thing that I've given the past 30 years of my life to understanding. I'm suddenly seeing it in a different way simply because I now know the language of the bass player. It's really fascinating and it's really exciting. Makes me wonder what other things in life I'm going to have a new understanding of once I learn that language. Okay, well, I mentioned Q&A Thursday earlier, and if you don't know what that is, here's a brief explanation. Toward the beginning of the quarantine, maybe around April of 2020, I had to get my car windshield replaced and was sitting in my house for a, a few hours waiting for them to finish the job. I didn't have anything else to do because nothing was happening, everything was shut down, and I couldn't even go over to my studio and play the drums. So I decided to post the sticker in my Instagram story of like, ask me a question. I had noticed it flipping through the Instagram story stickers and thought, oh, we'll see what happens with this. And a bunch of people started asking me questions and they were really interesting, thought provoking questions. I mean, sure. Some of my friends asked joke style questions or used the opportunity to make some sort of snide remark or whatever. But a lot of people asked stuff that really made me think and I really enjoyed answering the questions. So the following week, I did it again. It just happened to have been on a Thursday and just said, hey, everybody, I had so much fun ask, answering questions last week. Let's do this again. And I got twice as many questions. And it turned into a thing. I, I do it basically every Thursday now. In fact, I think it was in late June or July of 2020 after I'd been doing it for a few weeks in a row I didn't do it one Thursday with kind of like no no warning I just didn't do it I was busy doing other things and a bunch of my friends reached out to me like hey man are you okay because we you didn't do Q&A Thursday and I thought my goodness I can't believe people really enjoy this or are paying attention at, at the very least so I've been doing it ever since and personally it's a 
a challenge that I welcome in my ability to articulate my thoughts in print. It's one thing for me to speak and anyone who's listening to the podcast to hear my vocal inflection. It's another thing entirely for me to type all that stuff out and to do so in a concise manner within the space of what an Instagram story post allows. Only so many characters that I can type with and I have to try to make my point quickly, concisely, surrounding any number of topics and issues. I really enjoy it. I also enjoy that the dialogue is unsolicited. The people who choose to ask a question are choosing of their own, as opposed to me weighing in with a bunch of thoughts on hot button topics when nobody asked to hear about those things from me. Instead, people are asking about things that they care to ask, which is, I think, a lot of fun and promotes dialogue and discussion, maybe a healthy engagement with social media on my part where I I could otherwise just post a bunch of clips of myself drumming and try to make myself look cool or watch clips of other people drumming and feel jealous or envious. Instead, letting people ask the questions that are on their mind and then challenging myself to answer them well has been a wonderful regular practice over the past year. And then in Q&A Thursday, people started asking when I would release a podcast of sorts, like Q&A Thursday. Like, you should turn this into a podcast was a pretty common DM that I got during that period of time. Yeah, I still I still get that. Right up until I launched the podcast, people were asking me, asking me uh, when are you going to turn this into a podcast? Suffice to say, Q&A Thursday is largely responsible for the existence of the Steve Gould Show at all. So I figured from time to time I'd do an episode revisiting some of those questions. I'm going to select a few of my favorites, read them, read my answer, and then maybe expand a little bit. So I'm going to start with this one here. I remember this was from a friend of mine in Minnesota. He says, what are your thoughts on agnosticism and its potential to lead to existential nihilism? (laughs) Here's that question again. What are your thoughts on agnosticism and its potential to lead to existential nihilism? Okay, let me just say, if you submit questions on Q&A Thursday and you want them to make it onto the podcast, that's the kind of question that I want to answer. Here's my answer from Q&A Thursday when this question was asked last July. Agnosticism is, to me, just humility plus skepticism. Humility equals a healthy suspicion of my own knowledge. Skepticism equals a healthy suspicion of others' knowledge. I'm not sure either of those things have existential nihilism as their necessary outcome. In other words, reality doesn't offer us any absolute certainties, but life is not therefore meaningless. Okay, so that was my answer. Uh, Here's a little bit of background. Agnosticism in the evangelical church world, this friend of mine who asked the question was from my church background. Agnosticism is a loaded term. It refers to a position about religious matters or philosophical matters, a position that claims to just not have any real knowledge. It's kind of like saying, I don't know. Somebody asks me, what's God like? And I say, I don't know. They say, well, who's, who is Jesus? And what did, what was Jesus's main teaching? And I say, I don't know. And then they say, oh, so you're an agnostic? Almost like being an agnostic is some sort of sleight of hand trick to get out from under answering compelling questions. At this point, I would say that I, Steve Gould, am an agnostic. I've discovered so much about life that was different. Uh, Let me say that again. I've discovered so many things about life 
that turn out to be different than I originally thought they were, it causes me to press pause on anything that I think I know. Makes me want to patiently, diligently, and extensively research almost everything. And then any conclusion that I arrive at, want to put a little asterisk next to it that I might be wrong. So that's why in the answer I bring up that life doesn't give us any absolute certainties. In my experience, that's the truth. Nothing is absolutely certain. I mean, we all know the phrase, nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. I don't even think those things are, at least in the sense that nobody knows when they're going to die and taxes are oftentimes changing. So that's why I say in the answer, humility is a healthy suspicion of my own knowledge, meaning that I know I don't know everything. And skepticism is a healthy suspicion of others' knowledge because I don't believe anyone else knows everything either. We are all moving through the world and doing our best, making a lot of educated guesses, but they're still guesses. So when I say I'm an agnostic, I'm saying that I'm skeptical of both my own knowledge and anyone else's knowledge. And therefore, my answer to almost any question, whatever question you're asking me about the world, about religion, about philosophy, even about an area that I have expertise in like music or drums, ultimately my answer is I don't quite know. And within church circles, there's a typical response to that, which is like, oh, well, then life is just meaningless, isn't it? And I don't think that's necessarily true. Just because I don't know for certain answers to some of life's deepest questions, like what what are we here for? Where did we come from? Who or what is God? What does God want from me? Those are really deep questions. And just because I don't have a definitive answer to those questions doesn't mean that I don't know how to move through my day with purpose and find joy and find fulfillment. So those are my thoughts on agnosticism and its potential to lead to existential nihilism. Wow, what a question. Okay, here's my next one. How do you build integrity slash trust with someone? What a cool question to be asked. Here was my answer. Time plus consistency. It can't happen quickly, and it won't happen if the landscape keeps suddenly changing. Bring the same level of care and love and excellence every time the opportunity arises, and do that for years and years. Integrity slash trust will be built. I think. (laughs) And I intentionally end the answer with I think in a question mark, because again, to pull the agnostic here, I don't totally know. That's been my life experience. Trust comes from time and consistency. And I and I worded the answer in a way that I think can apply to a lot of relationships as opposed to just, let's say, a relationship between romantic partners or a relationship between business partners, a relationship between teammates or even between close family members like a mother and her daughter or something like that. But some friends and I were discussing recently the nature of trust between each other in the friend group and then between even like ourselves and our children and other close relationships. And in the discussion, we brought up the notion that trust comes from feeling safe, which is a component that I didn't include in this answer, but now I'm really convinced that that's part of it. If I want you to be honest with me about something, about everything, and then you are honest 
and I take your honesty and use it to jab at you, or maybe I use your honesty as a basis for me to get really angry and then vindictive, or perhaps I use your honesty as a way to make you look bad in front of other people, pretty soon you're not going to be honest with me anymore. And it isn't because you're a liar. I think that's how we all work. If a person or a relationship doesn't make us feel safe, we're not going to be honest. And I don't mean like, hey, did you do the dishes? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And it's a total lie. Like I I did do the dishes and I'm just lying about it for some reason. I'm not talking about that kind of honesty. I'm talking about showing someone the depths of who we are or partnering with someone in a way where we're fully transparent. Full transparency often brings vulnerability and it's scary. And how another party handles that vulnerability and fear, I think is a really foundational component of how to build trust. At least that's how my life experience has gone. So how do you build integrity and trust with someone? Time and consistency, but also intentionally making that person feel safe in the relationship, specifically safe with their honesty. And my friends and I were discussing this as it relates to our children, where I've got teenagers at this point. Teenagers are going through a lot, especially in 2021. The landscape of how to be a teenager is just, wow, it's mind-blowing to me. I can't imagine what that experience is like. And I want my daughters to be honest with me. But classically, in the parent-child relationship, when the child does something, quote, wrong, the parent gets angry and the child gets in trouble. There's a, there's a really compelling reason to not be honest with your parents right there. I remember that sensation. I don't want my mom and dad to get angry with me. I don't want to get in trouble. So I'm not going to tell them what really happened. This is an interesting balance to strike with the concept of trust coming from safety because I certainly don't want my daughters to feel a license to do whatever they want and that there will be no repercussions. It's not how life works. There's repercussions for what we do. There's consequences for our actions and choices. But it does, it does make me pause and wonder when it is appropriate for me to get angry and make them feel like they're in trouble. When, if I think carefully about it, I realize all they were doing was being honest with me. So it has really made me stop and think about the component of trust and the way trust invites honesty only if the person on the other end of the relationship feels safe, to be honest. Okay, next question. Getting a little controversial here. This question was asked last May, uh, I think it was May, maybe beginning of June, during the extensive protests and calls for racial justice as a result of George Floyd's murder at the hands of Derek Chauvin. Here's the question. What are your thoughts on defunding the police? (laughs) All right, here we go. I started this way. Disclaimer, I am not an authority in this matter at all, and I'm totally spitballing in this answer, dot, dot, dot. You can see me almost doing the agnostic thing again. Here's what I said. I'll admit that my immediate reaction upon hearing the phrase being thrown around last week, defund the police, was feeling like the idea was a reactionary overreach. I still feel that way if the term defund is equivalent to, quote, abolish. Logically speaking, 
Law enforcement is necessary in any society that has laws. I don't hear anyone calling for the abolition of laws, so we therefore can't abolish law enforcement. But what we can do is follow the money. People and systems in our culture respond to funding more quickly and more comprehensively than any other motivator. Want to make a change? Start moving the money around. For example, what if law enforcement got almost zero dollars for, quote, riot gear and crowd control? And all of that money went instead to education and drug treatment programs and inmate rehabilitation efforts. Is that defunding the police? Maybe that's just putting the money where it can actually make the difference we all say we want. I'll admit that I took a while to think about that answer and type it as carefully as I could. As a result, a year later, I still stand by all of that. I don't think it's wise at all to eliminate the laws in our society. And if we're going to have laws, we have to have some system by which to enforce the laws. Law enforcement exists to enforce the laws. However, the more I've learned about the history of the police and how the police forces in our country started and for what purpose, the more convinced I am that current policing needs to go away entirely. Okay, I admit, that presents quite a conundrum. How do we have law enforcement while scrapping the police system as we know it? Here we go again with the agnosticism. I don't know, but I want to talk about it. I want to think about it. I want us as a society to ask these tough questions and start dialoguing, as opposed to just throwing the idea out de facto, Upon hearing the notion, defund the police, it's like, no, we're never going to do that. Stop bringing that up. Boy, I think it's really worth bringing up. Again, especially as it pertains to money. The way money operates in our society, I mean, who in their right mind thinks that all of the riot gear that's being purchased by police departments across our country, the heavy-duty riot gear, who thinks that stuff isn't expensive? We all know it is. We all know that stuff is really expensive. In fact, our country's police budget is greater than the military budget of a lot of other countries. Like the institution that other countries use to defend their citizens from outside attacks, our country uses to police its own citizens. Here's what I'm saying. There are companies that are getting very wealthy off of the production and sale of the equipment that the American police forces are purchasing. Is that really what we want to be doing? Especially when so many other aspects of a healthy society, whether it's social work, prison reform, or even just uh, patrolling the streets in a helpful way, feeding the homeless, sheltering those who need protection from their own domestic situations. Those things are so underfunded. And instead, billions and billions of dollars are going towards tanks and guns and batons and instruments of harm. Let me say this. I'm as wary as anyone else of getting attacked by a stranger who is looking to steal my money or harm my loved ones, looking to break into my house and take what is not theirs. I'm wary of that. I understand that that's a thing that happens in society. 
I don't know that it happens so often that we need to buy tanks for the police forces. But I'm willing to enter into a discussion about all of that stuff. And so, to get back to the question, what are your thoughts on defunding the police? Aside from everything that I typed, my main thought at this point is, I want to keep talking about this subject. I want to keep thinking about it. I want to learn more. I want people to talk to me. I want to listen to communities who are underrepresented in local governments or underrepresented in the water cooler conversations that are happening in offices. I want to listen to the experiences of people who aren't like me. And I want our society to, to not simply blindly accept that policing as it looks right now is just probably the way we should always do it. Because I don't agree with that. I think, I think it really needs to change. Okay, uh, here's a fun one. <laughs> Within evangelical Christianity, when someone starts to question some of the basic premises of evangelicalism, not the basic premises of Christianity itself, but of the specific brand of Christianity known as evangelicalism, when someone starts to question that stuff, the term deconstruction is emerging as an explanation of what that person is doing. Now, among evangelicals, that's considered the buzz term to describe those of us who are asking some of these fundamental questions. And obviously, I have an extensive background in the church. I have a degree in biblical studies and theology from Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. My dad was a pastor. I was raised in that scenario. And as I've gone through a deconstruction over recent years, the people in my life who are not undergoing deconstruction have expressed concern. And some of those folks are on Instagram, which is great. I'd love to hear from them. This question, the way it was asked, seemed kind of like an attack on my deconstruction process. Here's what it was, the question. Have you ever actually even read the Bible? (laughs) That was the question. And my answer was all the way through, five separate times, and a bunch of specific book study on top of that. Which is the case. I have experience with the Bible. And the question, I think, is asked from an interesting headspace that I find in evangelicals who aren't undergoing deconstruction. The headspace is, people don't believe what we believe because they don't know about it. People don't look at the Bible the way I do because they've never read it, because they don't know what's in there. So the question have you ever actually even read the Bible? To me, feels like the kind of response that a typical evangelical gives when I start asking fundamental questions about that belief system. So yeah, I have read the Bible. <laughs> I, I know what's in it. I actually have done some pretty extensive study about the various schools of thought on how to interpret and understand what's in the Bible. Because there's so many different approaches, so many different eras and movements and sects within modern Christianity. For a while, the only approach that I knew was evangelicalism. So I was reading the Bible a lot just through that lens. But now I've done quite a bit to expose myself to the perspective of the scriptures that other Christian lenses provide. Mystic Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, Catholicism, and then other parts of Protestantism that are not just evangelical. So I thought the question was funny. Kind of presumes, maybe the questioner was just curious and chose to word the question in a way that sounded like an accusation. 
to answer the question, I have read the Bible. And at this point, my questions about the Bible are because I've read it, not because I haven't. music you've been hearing in this episode is a band that I was in back in Minneapolis. We started around 2004. It's called the Bill Mike Band. And I'm playing music from that band during this episode because uh, the last question from Q&A Thursday that I'm going to share was about that band. Someone who knows about that band, which admittedly is very few people, but I'm really proud to have been in the band, so I'm kind of like trying to raise the awareness here on the podcast, but somebody who already knew about the band asked on a Q&A Thursday question a long time ago, what was your favorite thing about playing in the Bill Mike band? Here's my answer. The balance of frenzied, reckless abandon combined with studied and sharp precision. Mike and Chris, those are the two members of the band, Mike and Chris are such badass players and creatives, and that music was such a powerful force to perform. We all leaned into the power, but then juxtaposed the intensity with careful execution. Okay, this might sound like I'm complimenting myself there. I'm rather just celebrating what remains my favorite project that I've ever been part of. As a a creative force, as a group of friends, as a journey through, you know, the beginning phases of the music industry. I mean, Chris, the bass player, Chris Morrissey, Misty mentioned him in, in the interview I did with with her. Chris was the MD in Sarah Burrell's band, and I met him way, way back in high school. He and I have played so much music together. Jazz, rock, cover bands, wedding reception bands. Chris is the bass player that I cut my teeth with. Like, I learned how to play music with Chris. And then we both learned how to be professional musicians together. And we joined this original power rock trio with another guy from Minneapolis whose name was William Michael. He went by Bill Mike for short, and it was kind of his band. He's the guitar player and singer. I promise I won't always feature music that I've been a part of, but I'm taking the opportunity of the Q&A Thursday question about the Bill Mike band to introduce anybody listening to the podcast to this band. Not very many people know about it. I wish more people did. It's something that I'm really proud of. We made two records, uh, one in 2004 and one in 2007, and we played a ton of shows. I remember we played the opening night at the Varsity Theater in Minneapolis, first show that ever happened at that place. It's a pretty prominent venue there now, but we played that gig the night after my older daughter Betty was born on May 2nd, 2015. She was born on May 1st, and then on May 2nd I was playing with the Bill Mike Band. I have so many great memories with this band. 
the song that was playing leading into this postlude segment is called Courageous. It's from our second record. And the song I'm going to play now at the end of the episode in full is called Better News. Also from the second record. This is maybe the recorded performance that I'm most proud of in my entire career. It's a long song. There's a bunch of emotional contour to it. And I'm just really happy that the tape was rolling while this was recorded. I'm really happy to have been in this band. This is Better News by the Bill Mike Band.
the Steve Gould Show.